Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Now there's a proverb in the Bible from the book of Proverbs uh, and it reads, the one who digs a pit will fall into it and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. The warning, an observation uh, that those who cause trouble will often end up suffering from their own actions. Uh, You're laying a trap for others, or you're actually laying a trap for yourself in the end. Foolishness, selfishness, evil actions, these things uh, will breed breed trouble not just for others, but for yourself. It's a a good summary of uh, what we talked about in the kids' talk. The one who digs a pit will fall into it. Uh, the, the episode in the book of Judges that we're reflecting on today, it's, it's not exactly a new Judges story uh, as we've seen so far. It, it's not another story of God graciously raising up a judge to rescue his people despite their ongoing unfaithfulness. It's more like a, a tragic epilogue to the Gideon story that we looked at last week. And it's a powerful testimony to that proverb, I think, to that truth. Uh, the one who digs a pit falls into it. Greed, deceit, treachery, violence breeds greed, deceit, treachery, and violence. Evil is brought back on the heads of evildoers, quite literally, we're going to see. It's kind of like a movie, I think, as you read through this whole passage, uh, where you're watching the lead characters make bad decision after bad decision, only making things worse, and you're kind of cringing as you watch it unfold before it all just spirals into complete destruction. Uh, I still remember the, the really awful hollow feeling I had uh, when I watched the Woody Allen movie, Match Point. Uh, it just made me feel horrible. It's not a fun movie to watch. Uh, so this is not particularly a recommendation. Uh, it, it tells the story of the, the unraveling of the moral fiber of the main character, Chris Wilton, uh, into a, a spiral of deceit and violence that he really creates for himself. Uh, Chris becomes friendly with a wealthy family, He gets a job at the father's firm, he marries the daughter, uh, but he's also developed a deep attraction to his brother-in-law's fiancée, Nola, and they end up having an affair. Uh, His lust and his lies are starting to make life more and more complicated, and it all escalates when Nola explains that she's pregnant and she wants to raise the child with him. Well, Chris, he's he's become too attached to the life that he's created. He can't let her ruin his new upper-class life and he decides the only way out is to murder Nola. And in the process, to get away with it, he also murders Nola's elderly neighbour and stages a robbery. It just gets worse and worse. Uh, in a way, Judges 8 to 9 is a, is, feels kind of similar. It's a similar story of deceit, unfaithfulness and violence leading to more and more deceit, unfaithfulness and violence, where everybody suffers in the end. Uh, We see the consequences of evil actions coming to fruition and taking their toll. But Judges 8 to 9 is also very different to this movie, Match Point, because, and I'm really going to ruin it now if I haven't ruined it already, you know what the worst part of the movie is? He gets away with it. Now, on one level, uh, he doesn't, of course. His soul is kind of destroyed 
in the process. His life is, is really barely holding together. But on another level, he does get away with it. He seems to get away with all his manipulation, his lies, his violence. Uh, his wife, his father-in-law, even the police, they're all deceived by him in the end. And, and a moment of chance leads to someone else taking the blame. That's where the movie ends. Just carries on with his life. It leaves you feeling hollow and, and angry. See, as far as I can tell, Woody Allen doesn't seem too fussed about making you feel happy uh, through his movies. He's got some other purpose. The movie plays on our psychological need for justice. It shows us how uncomfortable we are, uh, distressed when it's missing. And I think Judges 8 to 9 speaks to that need. See, on one level, it reveals the tendency for evil actions to be brought back on ourselves in this life. You dig a pit, you'll fall into it. But it also speaks to the promise that evil will be brought to account in the end. One way or another, whether in this life or the next, God will bring evil back onto the heads of evildoers. That's where we're headed. Now, this sad story really begins with Gideon and his complicated legacy described for us in the last part of chapter 8, which we began to touch on last week. You see, the narrator, I think, seems to have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Gideon. Uh, In one sense, this story uh, today is a story of Israel failing to do the right thing by a good man, Gideon, for all the good that he's done for Israel. Uh, Israel is held to account for not treating him rightly. But in another sense, it's the story of the evil that, that grew from the seeds that Gideon himself sowed, foolishly sowed. Uh, we saw last week how the Israelites wanted to make Gideon king um, because of the way that he'd saved them from the Midianites, but he resisted and said, no, no, God should rule over you, not me. But then he goes and leads them into idolatry by setting up a gold ephod that the people end up worshipping in his hometown. Uh, and here in the final verses, we, we get a mixed picture again. Uh, on the one hand, Gideon seems to have some kind of restraining effect on the Israelites. It's, it's after he dies uh, that they give themselves more fully to idolatry, um, that they forget the Lord, their Savior, and they, they devote themselves to another false Savior. And it's also seen as a bad thing, isn't it, that they don't show kindness to the house of Gideon after all the good that he's done for them. And yet, what do we also discover about Gideon in these verses? He had 70 sons because he had many wives. Gideon says, no, no, I shouldn't be your king. We, we don't want a, a king. God can be king, but then he goes and behaves like the kings of the nations all around them, amassing wives and establishing a ruling family in the, in the central region of Israel. And not only wives, but concubines, women that he's claimed for himself, but he doesn't even honour by making them his wives. And one concubine who lived in Shechem bore a son, that's the one that we hear about, and what did Gideon name this son? Abimelech. You know what that means in Hebrew? My father is king. It's an interesting name to choose for someone who's saying, no, no, I won't be king. It's not quite the perfect picture of humble righteousness. Complicated. And whilst people are responsible for their own actions, what happens next? Well, it's not totally surprising, given what Gideon does. His own actions. See, Abimelech, he grows up to be what you, what you would call a troubled man which is natural for the illegitimate son of an almost king who grows up away from the family home, not quite part of the large influential family, and yet, ironically called, my father is king. Can't blame him for being a little bit troubled. 
And so the cautionary tale of Abimelech and Shechem uh, to come, it begins with Gideon and his sense of, of self-importance and his foolish, ungodly approach to family and sexual ethics. He sows the seeds of destruction to come. So we, I don't think we want to miss that, that subtle warning for us right up front. Well, then in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, we, we see the key events that this whole story really revolves around. Abimelech bursts into the scene fully here, and he leads the people of Shechem in an act of violent treachery against Gideon's family that leads to their mutual destruction in the end. So he goes to his uncles on his mother's side, living in Shechem, and he says to them and the rest of the clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. Abimelech plays the connection card, doesn't he? I'm one of you. Who's Gideon? Who are the 70 sons of Jeroboam? Do you want 70 sons from another tribe or, or one king from your own clan? And it works, doesn't it? The citizens of Shechem decide to back Abimelech because he's related to them. They give him money, 70 shekels of silver from, from the temple of their false god. That number 70 sounds ominous. Uh, 70 brothers, 70 shekels of silver, what's going to happen there? Well, Abimelech then uses this money to hire a gang of thugs who become his followers and enforcers. And what's first thing on the agenda? He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. Once uh, Abimelech is confident that he has the power to do what he wants, well, he does what he wants. He wastes no Time in seizing power, first of all, by slaughtering his own half-brothers who stand in the way. And not only did the citizens of Shechem enable um, Abimelech by funding his gang of thugs, but they respond to this brutal mass murder by gathering together with the citizens of neighboring, uh, neighboring city to crown him king. Well done, Abimelech. Hooray! They've fallen in behind this charismatic leader from their own clan, and they don't seem to be troubled by the heads that have rolled in the process. They seem to think it's worth a little bloodshed to have one of their own in charge. But there's a complication, isn't there? Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding, and he has something to say to them all. In verses 7 to 21, we hear the judgment of Jotham on the citizens of Shechem and on Abimelech for what they've done. As we heard in the reading, he has a parable for them, a story about trees who want to uh, go out and anoint a king over themselves. They try to convince an olive tree, a fig tree, a grapevine, but all these good, fruitful trees decline. It wouldn't be right to give up bearing their own fruit uh, to rule over the trees. They're, they're too valuable in their own right. Why should they do that? So the trees turn to a useless thorn bush and ask it to come and be their king. And what does the thorn bush say? If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. They turn to the thorn bush because the good and useful plants have declined. Uh, and not only does the thorn bush happily accept, but he immediately demands submission. Treat me as your king or I will destroy you. The meaning is, is clear. They've done a stupid, terrible thing, and it will come back to bite them. The man they've backed is a dangerous man, unfit to be king, and they will pay the price. The shelter that he will provide 
uh, it will be like crouching under a thorn bush. And if they try to resist because it, it doesn't feel very good, well, he's going to lash out and it's going to get worse. But Jotham doesn't leave it up to their Im imagination to figure out you know, what, what's going on here. He spells out their sin and the meaning of his story. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you've revolted against my father's family. You've murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he's related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Now, there's no real question, is there? Um, they have not acted honorably. That's the point. He's not potentially wishing them well. After all his family did for Israel, they have responded with treachery. They have effectively participated in the murder of the 70 sons of Gideon by making Abimelech king. And why did they do all this? Simply because he was related to them. They have sacrificed character and principles for the sake of protecting their own interests and promoting their own tribe. Now, unfortunately, that's not uncommon, is it? There are plenty of Abimelechs in our world, not always slaughtering 70 brothers in a single day, but grabbing for power and trampling on people in the process. And there are plenty of citizens of Shechem, people willing to back and enable leaders who exploit and who rule without principles because it's in their interests, or at least they think it is. In all kinds of organizations, at all levels of society, there is always a temptation to prioritize and value charisma and connections. I think we might be one slide ahead, Melody. Yeah. Uh, prioritize and value charisma and connections in leaders over character. And that's always a bad idea, isn't it? Charisma and connections can make someone seem like good news for you personally. They, they represent your tribe, your interests. They seem like they'll get things done. But when it comes at the cost of character, it's always going to be bad news. The compromises are just too great. People will get hurt. Leadership becomes exploitation rather than service. And as Jotham points out, when we, when we knowingly enable and support ungodly leadership, well, we, we participate in the wrongs of those leaders. We end up paying the price. Now, it has been quite sobering to consider the number of high-profile high Christian leaders who have been exposed in one way or another in recent years as, as really self-serving and exploitative. Uh, the highest profile, of course, is um, Mark Driscoll and the story of, of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Now, Mark didn't begin his ministry with the slaughter of 70 brothers. Um, but if you listen to the, the podcast, um, the, the sobering story, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, well, in some ways, it's not too far from the truth. Uh, in a talk given um, the day after he fired two church elders, Driscoll made these infamous comments. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. 
Those are the options, but the bus ain't going to stop. Pretty, pretty scary words, isn't it? The rise and fall of Mars Hill is a complex story. It, it's not all bad. God still did amazing things through a broken system with unhealthy leadership, but it's certainly a, a sobering tale of the consequences of overlooking character flaws, choosing to explain away issues and, and justify controlling behavior for the sake of being on the winning team. Mistreating others or enabling those who mistreat others because it seems like the easiest thing to do, the, the, the path with the results that you want, it will always end badly. Not the right thing. And it certainly ends badly for Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. Uh, at the end of his speech, Jotham pronounces a curse on them. May you destroy each other for your unfaithfulness. May fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, and may fire come out from you and consume him. May God bring your evil back on your heads. And this sober pronouncement, it really sets the agenda for the rest of the chapter. In verses 22 to 24, the narrator explains the big picture of what happens next. It gives us the divine perspective, the theological explanation for the tale of destruction to come. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. Now we're told up front that these guys end up getting what they deserve and that it's no accident. God is ultimately behind these events, avenging the wrongs that they have done. But it's interesting to note, isn't it, that God only sets things in motion three years later. Abimelech had carried out this mass execution. Uh, the people of Shechem had supported him and proclaimed him king. And yes, that pesky Jotham had, had got away and he'd made his doomsday pronouncement. But, but what had happened then? Nothing. Jotham just ran away and no one ever heard from him again. And, and so far, three years later, well, his words seem to have come to nothing. Abimelech has established his rule. Everyone seems to have conveniently forgotten about the sons of Gideon. But no, God has not forgotten. Jotham's cry for justice has not come to nothing. Things are about to change. And from the outset, we know why. We know God is bringing that evil back on them. And so from verse 25, we see Abimelech beginning to get a taste of his own medicine. Uh, he played on the fickleness of the people and emphasized his blood connections to them to gain their support. Well, now he finds out that can work both ways. Uh, first, in verses 25, the citizens of Shechem make a move to subvert Abimelech's authority. In verse 25, in opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set up men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. But before he can do anything about it, we meet a new character who stirs the pot even more. Verse 26, now Gaal, son of Ebed, moved with his clan into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their god. And while they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve? Uh, and why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebul his deputy? 
serve the family of Hamer, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only these people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. You see, it seemed like such a good idea to Abimelech to play up his own blood connections to the people of Shechem when he was convincing them to abandon their loyalty to the sons of Gideon. But now someone comes along and does the same thing to him. And it's even easier the second time. The people of Shechem have developed a habit of switching allegiances based on connection and charisma without thinking too hard about whether it's the right thing to do, thanks to Abimelech. You see, if a man leaves his wife for another woman, well, that woman shouldn't be too surprised when he does it again three years later with another woman. Treachery and unfaithfulness breeds treachery and unfaithfulness. If you set an example cutting, at corners, uh, cutting corners at work when it suits you, well, don't be surprised when your workers do the same thing when it suits them. If you lash out at your family, don't be surprised when they do the same to you. But this is not simply a story of Abimelech's actions coming back on himself. It's a more complicated story than that. It's a story of mutual destruction. Uh, we continue reading from verse 30. When Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gaal, said of Eber, uh, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gaal, son of Ebed, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaal and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. The Abimelech still has some support, even if the majority of the city seems to be swayed by Gaal's big talk. Uh, and so, verse 34, Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now, Gaal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding place. When Gaal saw them, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. So uh, Zebul, the governor, he seems to have managed to retain the confidence of Gaal, uh, even though Gaal was trashing him at the festival. And now Zebul gets back at Gaal. He does his part to lure him into the trap. Zebul replied, you mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gaal spoke up again. And uh, you can imagine him kind of rubbing his eyes, you know, st squinting, staring, and then, you know, suddenly choking on his morning coffee. Look, people are coming down from the, the central hill and a company is coming from the direction of the divinest tree. And so now Zebul digs the knife in, basically pushing him out to fight by calling him a chicken if he doesn't. So Zebul said to him, verse 38, Where's your big talk now? You who said, Who is this Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men that you ridiculed? Go on, go out and fight them. So Gaal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zebul drove Gaal and his clan out of Shechem. Now, there's no mention of God in these verses. This, this guy, Gaal, he just happens to come along and talk big and stir up trouble, and the governor just seems to decide of his own accord to, um, to decide with Abimelech and plot to get rid of Gaal and his supporters. But we know from, from the, the narrator from the outset that it's God's sovereign hand working with and through the sinfulness and the decisions of all these people to bring justice 
on both Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And that's why it doesn't stop here. The fulfillment of Jotham's words of judgment is just getting started. You see, Abimelech could have left it there, couldn't he? And he had dealt with the threat. This usurper, Gaal, had been chased away, chased out of town. His, his supporters had been killed. But it wasn't enough. He wanted the people of Shechem to pay for even thinking about crossing him. So from verse 42 we read, The next day the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them in three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate, and then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. Now, he's not fighting an army. He's slaughtering citizens uh, because they've double-crossed him. Fire has started to come, bursting out of the thorn bush to devour the trees of Lebanon. But it's just getting started. Keep reading verse 46. On hearing this, what Abimelech did to the city of Shechem, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went up into the stronghold of the temple of el Berith. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalman. They took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. And he ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Well, the fire has quite literally started now, hasn't it? The thorn bush is lashing out. Those who backed him, who supported his violent grab for power, have paid with their lives. They have learnt too late the cost of choosing a leader with no principles. But now the fire has started, it's really out of control. And so it turns back on the thorn bush itself. You see, once again, Abimelech could have stopped there. He'd lashed out in brutal vengeance. He'd raised Shechem to the ground. He'd made his point. He was a tyrant. No one had better cross him again. But he can't stop. He keeps going and attacks another nearby town. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Now, this is uh, the first time this town is mentioned. Maybe the people of Thebes played a role in Gaal's rebellion, or, or maybe Abimelech is just out of control, like every paranoid and violent leader who's, who's ever begun to suspect that, that the shadow is just out to get them. And so, like so many paranoid and violent leaders, before and after him, it leads to his own destruction. Verse 51, inside the city, however, was a strong tower, which to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They'd locked themselves in it and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman, a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. And you can imagine the, the glint in Abimelech's eyes as he goes to set fire to the tower. He's going to get them just like he did at the Tower of Shechem. He's going to make them pay. No one crosses him. He's the king. And then the shock, the horror, as he looks up and he sees this unnamed woman with a glint in her own eye. 
just before the stone smashes into his head. His lust for vengeance has led to his own destruction. He couldn't stop himself, and so someone else stopped him permanently. Fire hasn't just come out of Abimelech, it's come back on him. And so suddenly it's all over. Verse 55, when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. It's like they wake from a trance. They, they put down their swords. They just go home. The evil of Abimelech and the people of Shechem has run its course. The fire has, has burnt itself out. And so the narrator concludes, reminding us what has been happening. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. These aren't just random events, are they? God has repaid the wickedness of Abimelech and the people of Shechem. The curse of Jotham, it wasn't just the ranting of an angry brother. It was a prophetic warning of what would come from their evil. Now, we know this doesn't always happen. Sometimes um, bad people, like Chris Wilton in Matchpoint, they seem to get away with it. God doesn't always engineer things so that people pay the price in this life for the evil that they've done. But God does do that here, and we're explicitly told about it to remind us that this is ultimately what God is determined to do. He is a just God. Evil will be repaid. It's both an encouragement to those who cry out for God's justice and a warning to us when we are tempted to scorn it ourselves. There will be justice in the end. And more often than not, there will be a very real and tangible cost to pay in this life, won't there? Evil breeds evil. Treachery breeds treachery. Violence breeds violence. The one who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Now, it's not blind karma. Not everything bad that happens to you is punishment for some wrong that you've done. That's not how things work. We know that. But cruelty, pride, and selfishness does come at a cost. Acting out of greed, anger, jealousy, and bitterness. Well, the more we do that, it will tug at a string. Our hearts and our lives will begin to unravel the more that we give ourselves over to those kinds of attitudes and behaviors. In the opening chapter of his great letter to, um, to the Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about God handing us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. The form of God's judgment in, in this life uh, is often to allow us to do, what, to do what we want to do and to bear the cost of our foolishness and our rebellion. One sin leads to another, and we can end up in a pretty bad state. So we would be wise to pay attention to the cautionary tale of Abimelech and Shechem. Understand where sin will take you, whether you're a key player like Abimelech or whether you're getting caught up and participating in the ungodly behavior of someone else, like the citizens of Shechem. Hear the warning. The one who digs a pit will fall into it. Don't dig the pit. But finally, the story of Abimelech, it's not just a story in isolation, is it? It's part of this unfolding story of judges that highlights the persistently, stubbornly sinful hearts of God's people. It spells out the cost of that sin and draws attention to our need for a saviour. It helps us understand, yet again, from another perspective, our need to be saved from ourselves. See, we don't just need someone who will rescue us from the bad guys out there, from the bad things they do to us. 
We need someone who will save us from ourselves, from the sin that we keep bringing upon ourselves again and again. We need a saviour who will step in and pay the price for our own evil, for our own failure to heed that warning again and again. And so it's a story that that helps us say what an amazing saviour we have in Jesus, the one who steps in and pays that price. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you for uh, the stark warning of this story. It's not an easy um, or nice story to read, but it, it exposes the realities uh, of sin and the consequences of sin. And we pray that you would help us to heed that warning and to trust in your promise to bring justice. And we pray uh, that you'll help us to have grateful hearts, all the more uh, for this part of Scripture, grateful hearts for what you've done for us in Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you.